Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the latest developments in the Greensill lobbying scandal. And you ask us, what's happening in the Metro mayoral elections? The Greensill lobbying scandal is rumbling on. Um, The latest developments are that there are going to be a number of inquiries into Uh, what happened, but also the other stories that it touches on, including um, officials, senior civil servants, um, and their their moonlighting. So there's been the story that's been revealed about Bill Crothers, a senior civil servant who worked on procurement, actually working as an advisor to Greensill for two months when he was still in that job and about to leave Whitehall. Um, It looks like a great many parts of the way that Westminster and our government is run are being touched by this story. Does that make it any more of a danger for this government? Alva, you were covering it this morning. What do you think? Yeah, I think I haven't really made my mind up on this one, to be honest, Um, because as you just outlined, as this story develops, it is simultaneously coming closer to the current government. So as you mentioned, um, Boris Johnson is actually on the front page of the Daily Mail today um, for intervening on behalf of the Saudi crown prince, um, having been lobbied by him, even though ultimately the thing that the crown prince was asking for wasn't granted. But, um, you know, there there is a um, quite mild lobbying story by the prime minister this morning. And also um, there is a story about, um, or there's the revelation that, Boris Johnson's deputy chief of staff um, retained part ownership of a company that advises foreign governments um, while in number 10. She still, I mean, to this day, um, retains um, those shares. And um, so it's simultaneously coming closer and closer to the Conservative government, but it's also expanding wider and wider to... um, incriminate or potentially incriminate a lot of civil servants or senior civil servants too um so i think it could kind of go either way um i actually think that the thing that's 
kind of politically difficult about this or makes it possibly less interesting to cover is is really I think quite how bad this is for the civil service um it's only a tiny number of people um so far but a handful of senior civil servants who do have um second jobs or did it at some stage have second jobs in the private sector alongside their work for the civil service there's not actually any suggestion of any wrongdoing so far um, and it is it seems to be the case that this was within the rules um, but there is a question about um, those rules and it and it makes the civil service I think in particular look very bad because this is a a sort of different thing to to politics in that I mean, most politicians, you know, certainly in a Westminster context, you have, I mean, you have MPs and you have ministers and they are all to a degree powerful. I mean, the MPs aren't making laws, but they are all quite prominent and um, have a great deal of power and responsibility and doubly so for ministers. Um, Whereas I think the thing with the civil service is that, of course, there are very important civil servants working really at the heart of government in very senior positions. But there are thousands and thousands and thousands of civil servants working all across the UK um, and often doing so for not, you know, not particularly brilliant salaries um, and working in the public interest. And I think that it's so damaging for the civil service in general um, to have some of its most senior members um, shown to be, you know, to ha- to be to have other jobs and to, and to be potentially like profiting off that and and not necessarily, um, being entirely transparent. Um, so I think I think it's it's really bad for the civil service, but that makes it sort of difficult to talk about politically because the obviously Labour want to push the Tory sleaze angle, and um this is very damning for politicians as well but i i do i do i am very very struck today um at quite how bad this is for the civil service too there's not much you can do politically to make hay out of that it's just very bad for public life if the civil service um is brought into disrepute but that that's i think my main thought but i'm interested in what the two of you think about this too about whether this becomes a a Tory sleaze story or a, just a general story about the the political elite. Mm, I was struck by how hard Keir Starmer went on it at PMQs yesterday. I thought he was really good, um, the way that he did try and frame it as a Tory sleaze scandal. Um, that's quite a bold thing to do because, as you say, this kind of activity touches every party. And, and as we can see, it's touching a, a great number of people in politics and in Whitehall already. Um, and often, you know, with things like this, You've, you've seen it in the past with the expenses scandal, for example, but also um, other scandals like the amount of spending in individual constituencies during election time because of our sort of outdated election spending rules. Most parties don't like to, to go very hard on this stuff because they know that if they, you know, if they looked in the mirror, then they wouldn't then it wouldn't be a particularly flattering picture either. So I think it's bold of Keir Starmer to go on this and perhaps he can see like with the ex- expenses scandal that broke, you know, um, w- at a time when there were more Labour MPs, so there were, you know, there were just more, more, um, more of their expenses that could be put under scrutiny. Perhaps he sees it as okay, we've we've had over ten years of Tory government. All right, this government isn't the same government as you know the one under David Cameron, but but people do know that the same party has been in charge 
for all this time. And if you have, you know, what well, I think there are now seven inquiries coming out of this. Um, if you have a number of inquiries that are going to be asking about these questions, the most politically damaging stories are going to be the most recent ones um, in recent times, because, you know, that 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 is far more visceral and, and often the figures are, are, are likely to be around still. And David Cameron is still, you know, a very well-known public figure who's very active. So when you have when you have those recent stories coming out in the inquiries that are upcoming, then it's more likely to touch the party of government in charge, even if it encompasses the civil service, as you say, and other parties too, and senior figures in in, in previous governments that, that weren't Tory governments. So I think he's probably made the calculation that this could be particularly damaging for Boris Johnson's government, even if it's a wider story. So I, I was struck that he was bold enough to, to to go down that line, which suggests to me that this is this is at that tipping point, this story of tipping from you know, that kind of malaise and, and complacency uh, that we have about our politicians, you know, people, there's, it's often baked into people's thinking about politicians, politicians are very unpopular, people think, well, aren't they just doing all this anyway, isn't that just par for the course, it's tipping over from that into something that is a little bit more shocking and, and is more distasteful, particularly in the context of a pandemic, you know, particularly in the context of this idea that friends of People high up in government have been trying to profit from 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 the misery and the tragedy and and the chaos of this time. I think we're reaching that point now. What do you think, Stephen? And I should and I should warn our listeners. Stephen has been attempting to do his um, meeting sources out outdoors uh, today, so so we may get some wind in the background as well. Yeah, Laura Kane got nothing on me. <laughs> uh, I'm told this is a regular feature of of, of newscast, which I'm apparently stealing. Um, I think um, the, the, the two ways that the scandal has changed is one, as Alva says, it has widened to the senior civil service. But also, I think more importantly, it's quite difficult to see how this scandal doesn't end with civil servants, yeah, so senior civil servants, having to have a similar register of interests of the kind we all have as members of the parliamentary, well, I say we, I mean Alva and I have as members of the parliamentary press gallery where if we have additional um, money-making interests and come from our having the past, we have to declare that. There's a register of interests um, that you can see with every member of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. And obviously MPs and ministers have a register of interests. Now, the reason why I think that will potentially be quite significant is, um, as Alva says, all of this is within the rules, but like the house flipping in the expenses scandal was within the rules. The, you know, like, most of the stuff which made people really angry in the expenses scandal was, you know, was fine from a, you know, pe yeah, they, those people hadn't broken any expenses uh, regulations. Right? In some cases, they've been explicitly told, hey, look, here's a thing that you should do to compensate for your additional costs. And I think, therefore, there will probably be many more headlines of this type, of which I just think, yeah, I just think generally it's quite hard if you're the government of the day to escape some blame from that because like and we've, we've talked about this before right the reason why um like you know the kind of various arguments about government cronyism became acute in the middle of the pandemic is the government's pandemic response was not going well and i just think it's so unlikely that at the end of this there won't be three or four examples of you know something that the government didn't do that well or like a business which went bust or 
uh, lent alone and shouldn't be lent to, where there is an, um, a disclosure about proximity between the civil service and the private sector that is not uncomfortable for the government. Yeah, no, I, 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 th I think that's true, definitely. And also you do, there is a tipping point for all of this, even if, as you say, you know, most of it is technically allowed. The, the morality of it and the gap between the ordinary person reading these stories and what our leaders can get away with eventually does start to chafe. I remember I interviewed David Dimbleby last year and he was talking about sort of significant moments where he felt like public opinion was changing um, during uh, episodes of um, Question Time. And one of the stories that he told me was about Margaret Beckett and it was during the expenses scandal and she'd she'd um she'd used some of her expenses for something i can't remember what it was but it was something like hanging flower pots or, or something to something minor um outside her constituency house and one of the audience members asked her whether she would give that money back and and she said no because you know it, it was within the rules and david dimbleby just remembered the audience was absolutely furious and he was like that's when i knew you know that was a big burst of outrage. And of course, as we saw of how that story developed, you know, we still kind of have the ramifications today in terms of how unpopular our politicians are and how it's so difficult for them to, to gain people's trust. Even popular politicians, you know, don't rate particularly highly. Um, so, so I think this could be one of those moments. I mean, I, it depends, I suppose, on the mood, the, the public mood, but there has been a, a great deal of dissatisfaction with some of the with some of the response to the pandemic by the government and while there is going to be this vaccine bounce and while there is some optimism with the each of the devolved nations opening up a little bit more and a little bit more towards summer if stories like this rumble on they are going you know you can see at the moment it's filling the vacuum of news at the moment particularly following the the death of prince philip when the news agenda went quite quiet. You can see that when there is a vacuum of news, news like during summer, um, something like this can take hold and can dictate the agenda. And there's so many businesses that have suffered. There's so many people who've lost their jobs. What, what do they feel when they're reading about these, about people lobbying on behalf of, of businesses that have gone bust um, or, or, you know, or having, you know, the phone number of a particular minister who could help them out. How are they feeling when they read this stuff? I mean, it will be useful to get out and about and do some more reporting on the ground. But um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of those moments that David Dimbleby was describing to me when I spoke to him. I think my view is that it really, I think, depends on on what the next stories are. Just sort of stating the obvious there, I suppose. But, I mean, I think... I. I'm repeating myself when I really emphasize how vast I think this story is. Um, but I mean, it in a way, it isn't meaningfully one story anymore um, in that we're getting a lot of reporting on the themes of lobbying and double jobbing and conflicts of interest, which go quite far beyond the original story. And I think that, I mean, so... On Stephen's point, you know, I think it is likely that civil servants and advisors will have to declare their interests in a more transparent way and that there could be still some more scandal around that. But I think it's probably, you know, 
it's worth noting that we already have a register of interests for politicians like, you know, the kind that Stephen mentioned for the two of us and, and, and all, all the members of the press in Parliament. And the thing about that is that, you know, it means that most of our politicians' interests and potential conflicts of interest are matters of public record. And they're therefore not that shocking to people um, because there's a there's a sort of a feeling that once these things are declared and they're transparent, then they're completely fine. Politicians do have interests elsewhere that are just on the record and then people don't really know what to do with them. You can't expose them if they're already sitting there. Um, and so really it's only civil servants where there isn't a need to declare in the same way, where there's a, a more scope for scandal in that regard. So I think in terms of conflicts of interest, there isn't that much further that this can go because there have been plenty of conflict of interest scandals in the past or potential ones, and they just don't really, they don't resonate with that many people. I think that it's lobbying where this story could have legs that are damaging for the government um, because um, I think people do inherently find it a bit shocking that you know that someone is able to just text you know that you're able to text Rishi or or, you know take Matt Hancock for for a drink you know um it's you know it's completely right and proper that businesses and groups and individuals and charities and people from all walks of life in the UK should try to put their case um, and advocate for themselves to government but most people aren't able to text Rishi Sunak to make that case. And I think maybe like the that, that kind of core is the thing that will most surprise people or that story I mentioned about Boris Johnson being lobbied by the Crown Prince of, of Saudi Arabia. I think, you know, if there are more stories like that that come even closer to the current government, that's where this could be potentially the most scandalous as well as the actual, and then I suppose the third thing, is the 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 deeper problems around the access that Greenhill Capital was given um, to government during the Cameron era, and I think you know the question there. Then I mean, I suppose that's the heart of the Greensill scandal: the the actual use of supply chain finance in government and the access that Lex Greensill personally was given. I think that you know the, the so the core of the story is quite controversial. Definitely, I think. It's already not looking great for David Cameron. Can't see how it looks any better. But then how it touches the current government, I think it really rests on more developments um, that specifically touch the key characters in this government. The thing the thing still about this story, though, right, is, is it, I think at its heart, um, the thing which is damaging is simple, right? One, as Alva says, this idea that, well, like, you know, my business, which lost out X number of things during the coronavirus crisis, didn't have the chancellor's number, right? It's that kind of stuff. It's the, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But I think actually the biggest single problem that all of this creates for this government is that it imperils the very successful um, rebranding of it as a new enterprise in the summer of 2019. Because this is fundamentally a story about old relationships, right? It links back the shiny new chancellor to the tattered old prime minister. It links mm. the sitting prime minister to the government and he's kind of sort of, kind of like etch-a-sketched himself out of. And what has the, 
you know, the big strategic imperative of a lot of things Labour have said about this government since Keir Starmer has actually been the word old, right? This is an old government. This is a government that's been in power for more than 11 years. and will be in power for 14 years. Whether, And I think any story which, um, which, if this makes sense, brings the world of the 2010 Conservative Party closer to the world of the 2021 Conservative Party is kind of bad in a sort of kind of weird, weird way that no one sort of notices. But the big success of 2019 was they were able to be the change proposition. And I think one of the problems this story has is it, it, it draws into focus um, both the not being a change proposition in a kind of like, oh, you know, politicians up to their old tricks kind of way, which is mm. double-edged uh, for, for Labour, of course, but also just in a kind of very obvious way. And it goes, hey, look, these are the same people. And it's funny that we've seen, um, we saw yesterday in, in all of the debates about this in, in the House of Commons, um, the, the Conservative strategy at the moment really does seem to be this kind of, gosh, did you hear about this green cell scandal? Isn't that terrible? Did you hear about that David Cameron? <laughs> Awful business. Um, shocking. And and I mean, I think probably in the short term, that's reasonably successful. We saw so many Conservative MPs standing up saying that yesterday or things to that effect. But I think that maybe... There's just a limit to, to how much you can do that in the longer term because I don't see or it would, be, it would be an amazing political sleight of hand to maintain that shape-shifting that Stephen just described that people really seem to, to view Boris Johnson's Conservatives as a totally different party to David Cameron's Conservatives. Um, but, but you do have to wonder... And that this is a genuinely open question. I'm really not sure whether it'll work or not. But you do just think that, you know, taking chunks out of David Cameron, um, the former Conservative Prime Minister, um, as the Conservative Party, you do just sort of wonder, you know, how that won't just damage the Conservative brand overall eventually. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that is the key question, isn't it? Whether or not people will begin to associate this government with the days of of Cameron, and you know, having Boris Johnson in Parliament talking about Dave, and <laughs> it's not really going to help him. While people know that, you know, this the people at the top of this government are quite removed from from those days. I don't think that's necessarily obvious to the public as well. Um, there are lots of pictures of David Cameron and Boris Johnson together during the time when David Cameron was prime minister and Boris Johnson was was London mayor. I think there is an association there. You know, they went to the same school. Um, they're two very recognisable conservative politicians of recent times. I think it's optimistic for this government to think that it, it necessarily can carry on being seen as something new. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Us. So our question today is from Jacob Millen Bamford. Thanks for writing in. He's asking, what's going on in the West Midlands mayoral race? And we thought we'd use this uh, as an opportunity to talk about the Metro mayors who will be being elected on the 6th of May. Um, So London will be having its sixth mayoral election. And then there's six other regions who are about to hold their second. And West Yorkshire will be about to choose its, its first mayor. So shall we start on the West Midlands because that was the theme of the question. There's been a bit of uh, a bit of mayhem in Liam Byrne, the Labour candidate's campaign. It seems that he's lost some of his staff who were supposed to be working on the campaign, and that um, some of his parliamentary staff have been working on it instead. There's been a few reports trickling out about that. Um, does that suggest that that Labour isn't in the best shape to? to win that election, which it's so narrowly lost in 2017, Stephen? Yeah, I think it does. And I think it speaks to the weirdest thing about these Metro Mayor elections, which is actually how little attention uh, Labour has paid to them, not just over the last 18 months, but but basically actually going all the way back to um, January 2020, when these when most of the candidates for these vacant roles were selected, which is um, like... They were selected sufficiently late and they weren't able to address the Labour Party conference in 2019. Unlike, you know, Sean Bailey got a better slot at Conservative Party conference than any of the incumbent Labour mayors, let alone any of the challengers. And um, the uh, the new leadership has been slightly more interested in these races than the one which came before, but not like a lot more, up to and including the weirdness than considering when they these were last fought, they got 27%. Of the vote nationwide in the May 2017 local election. So if you think about even the worst polls for the Labour Party now, um, even if you have optimistic accounts of what the incumbents' um, personal ratings will be, right, the, yeah, the, the ability of Andy Street, Ben Houchin, et cetera, et cetera, to, to isolate themselves from the National Party brand, to do better than the National Party, these are all contests which really ought to be very much in reach just from a mathematical perspective, right, Labour ought to be able to, with a little bit of resourcing, you know, the right campaign, um, get over the line in these contests. Now, of course, that could still happen because, yeah, like the Labour Party could do quite badly and still be gaining quite a lot of votes on May 2017. Um, But it it does, I think, speak to the underlying weirdness of Labour's approach to these races, which I think is true of all of them in different ways, which is um, a kind of weird lack of interest. The candidates are obviously quite interested in them, but the party as a whole never seemed to be that fussed by the Metro mayors. And I think I would add on the West Midlands, mayoralty while we're on it is, I think, quite how confident the Conservatives are of keeping that one. Um, I think it's the the perverse um, impact of um, the kind of the disaster of a campaign that Sean Bailey has been having in London is that 
I don't think that there are, I mean, feel free to write in if you can find examples, but I don't think that there are any London conservatives or conservatives who live vaguely near London who are campaigning for Sean Bailey. They're all in the West Midlands campaigning for Andy Street to keep um, his place as, as West Midlands mayor. I think they're kind of um, I mean, it's quite an easy call. <laughs> I mean, why would you not do that if you looked at Sean Bailey's race and saw, and saw quite how badly that's going? But I think they're all reasonably confident, which should tell you, you know, from Labour's perspective, I don't think that they, um, I don't think their chances are that good in the West Midlands this time. It's interesting, isn't it? Because sort of some of the wisdom about Metro Mayors is that personalities can run for these positions. And people use the example of Ken Livingston and uh, and Boris Johnson and Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham in Manchester. But actually, there's there's an interesting piece for Centre for Cities that John Elledge, who used to work for us, has written, which shows that actually um, Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham are the only two mayors at the moment who have um, more than 50% of people actually know is their mayor. Um, and then the rest of them, you know, people are giving wrong answers or, or just uh, just don't know and, and weren't even aware that their, their city had a mayor. Um, so it's interesting from that perspective, because that does suggest that that name recognition hasn't cut through, even in places where, um, you know, the Tories have been championing their their mayor, like in the West Midlands with with Andy Street. So it will be interesting to see whether or not um, that kind of name recognition and that kind of star quality that Andy Burnham has you know, been trying to amass for himself since since taking the position and um, particularly sort of in his standoff with the government over the the restrictions last year. And, you know, there were conservative metro mayors who who were also um, public about their concerns about um, not being consulted about which parts of the country would be put into which tier, etc. It'll be interesting to see whether any of that has that has any manifestation in the election results or whether that kind of complacency or or that lack of interest even that you were describing does have an impact on on Labour's showing. Um, the West Midlands is an interesting example as well because it's that toss-up between um, whether or not this is going to be a truly post-Brexit election in which people are going to vote on sort of policy issues and, you know, transport infrastructure. And there's been a lot of job losses in the West Midlands. It's a very young region. And we know that young people have been hit by unemployment the hardest during the pandemic. Will people be voting on those kind of societal issues rather than voting the way that, you know, those five West Midlands constituencies did in 2019 when they uh, switched from Labour to the Conservatives? So it'll be interesting to see whether those changes um, to you know what people have described as Labour heartlands, although lots of West Midlands seats were marginals. It will be interesting to see whether those changes over the years since Brexit are bedded in and are going to endure, or whether or not people will sort of th- their loyalties will f- flip back, um, or whether they will express their dissatisfaction with the way that their their region or their city is run in a different way, in a less predictable way, or whether or not that pattern of certain areas drifting from Labour to the Conservatives is is going to be um, a permanent one, or not permanent, but um, but a long-term one. Yeah, and I think to, to drift sort of seamlessly from the West Midlands to the Tees Valley, I do think one of the fascinating things we see, actually across pretty much all of the incumbent Metro mayors, is um, how the having the perception here in London that you have done well and then you have a huge personal brand 
um, is actually, it turns out, more important, sadly, than whether or not that's actually true, right? We see that in different ways, right? Why is Sean Bailey the, the mayoral candidate for the Conservatives in London? Because broadly, no serious Conservative looked at Sadiq's numbers in 2018 when they selected and thought, yeah, I fancy that. Um, they went, why would I waste two years of my life being beaten by Sadiq Khan? Um, why is actually Labour has um, selected uh, quite a good candidate, I think, in, in the Tees Valley and a candidate in Liam Byrne who yeah, has a great CV um, and does meet the challenge of Labour appearing to take the results seriously in a way that with the greatest of respect to Sean Simon, you know, someone whose highest sort of career was being a junior minister and an MEP just did not reflect the seriousness of, 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 of that role. Um, but yeah, it's kind of it's sort of an accepted truth around here, here being Westminster, that you know Ben Houchin has done really well, and this is the important and that voters know about it. Now that is a bit true when you're like on the ground in the Tees Valley, right? You will meet people who are you know shall I say civically engaged who have picked up on the fact he's done well, but I'm not convinced there are that many. Yeah, then there are lots of uh, MPs in London who, if you go to like uh, the Friends of the Local Library Society or some other civically engaged group of people, they'll go, my MP's great or my MP's terrible. And obviously that is important, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually move a significantly large number of votes other than in very close elections. But the perception that the number of people in any given seat who, who feel that way exists is much larger than it is, I think is one reason why the Labour Party hasn't resourced um, Tees Valley as well as it could have done. Yeah, kind of it's one of those things where even the most um, sort of resolutely anti-Labour or anti-Keir Starmer talking head would now accept the idea that the Tees Valley uh, remaining Conservative is more of a reflection on Ben Houchin than it is on anything in national politics, which I think will be true because the belief that that's the case will be why he, he didn't have a properly resourced challenger. But I just think if you just look at it on the face of, of the constituencies, um, what we know about the extent to which uh, incumbent mayors do or do not have a proper footprint, particularly in these circumstances, is not really actually true. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Chikelian, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. We're produced by Chris Stone and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you want to leave us a question for the You Ask Us section, email in podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.